While there's no doubt that crossing a river, pond, or even a puddle can be great fun, exhilarating in fact, that is assuming you make it through, because if you don't, the result can run from, well, mild to very serious, even leaving you stranded or walking out or with a costly repair for your motorcycle. And it only takes one of many possible mistakes to ruin your day. But thankfully, there is a procedure. And if you follow it through, you're going to have your best chance of getting to the other side and smiling. Today on our Rider Skills, we're brushing up on water crossing skills and Clinton Smout is going to walk us through that procedure, step by step. He's also going to give you some exercises that you can do at home to build your skills while you're still dry. No water required. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicum. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Bill Dragoo. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Quentin Smoke. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. Rider Skills is an exclusive program we developed here at Adventure Rider Radio designed to give you tools that can improve your riding skills both on and off-road. Now, of course, these segments are not meant to be a substitute for professional training. These are ideas and concepts that should you choose to try, you're doing so at your own risk. Clinton Smout is the chief instructor at Smart Adventures. He's a certified BMW off-road instructor and holds many other instructor certificates for motorcycle riding, as well as snowmobiles and ATVs. He is a year-round power sports instructor. Clinton, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Hi, Jim. Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year. Yes, we've started a, a brand new year. Do you have any um, big plans for this year? Uh, well, I've, I'm excited about the tours I'm going on. And then, of course, work is always exciting. I'm out of work right now because we had great snow. And then right after Christmas, my part of Canada has almost Mexico temperatures <laughs> and all the snow has gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? So you're waiting for some more snow or to get on your bike. Have you put one? Of your, have you had pulled one of your bikes out because it's it's almost rideable now? Well, I did keep an XT250, a little Yamaha Enduro, and I kept a battery in it in case. But even that, I don't really want to go out on our roads because once they've salted, they use a brine mm-hmm. up here. And I don't want to get that all over my bike and I can't really wash it after riding. So I've just been using the truck 
and I'll be patient until I can get the snowmobiles back out. Well, we're talking about water crossing today. And I, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you with water crossing is, well, with everything, you know, you think of all the things that people fear when riding a motorcycle and, and understandably, because some of it, it can be very difficult and take some work to get over. Where do you think water crossing stands in the whole list of, you know, like saying sand and hills and mud and ruts? Where do you, where do you think water crossing sits for the average rider as far as um, level of difficulty or, or level of avoidance? Well, from my experience teaching kind of beginning or not really experienced adventure bike riders, there's definitely a phobia about water crossings, especially if they've had a bad experience or watched videos of bad experiences. Then that's something we've got to work through. And uh, we always tell them, and I know you're going to say you've heard it before, but let your friend go first and you can learn a lot <laughs> about how well before. they do. <laughs> I yes. have heard that once, once so, or twice. And, and and that's good advice. I, but um, so from your perspective, though, where do you see the the water crossing in, in those levels of difficulty, you know, with the mud and the ruts and the hill and the sand? Yeah, it really depends on the water crossing. Most of the water that we use at our training program are new puddles that are after a heavy, heavy rain. And when there's depressions in the ground, obviously they fill up with water. It's often in tire tracks in multi-trail use areas. And if there's a clay base to the soil, then the puddle's there for a long time. But most of our puddles, they show up and then three or four days later, they've uh, either evaporated or sunk down into the sandy soil. Mm. So we can't always teach easy puddles. The ones that are harder are that clay-based, very, very slippery. And that takes a different technique. And of course, rivers as well, because you've got all the stones, which just tends to be all a stone bottom, usually on a river or many times. Um, yes. And, and that can be quite difficult. And I was kind of thinking when I was asking you that is about the level of risk or at least what can go wrong is what I'm thinking of. That's why I was kind of thinking maybe the water crossings um, sort of high on that list. But but let's dig into it. We'll we'll talk yeah. about that and, and talk about all those different things. And, and you made a very good point there when you're saying about it depends on the water crossing is true. I mean, because a puddle like, a, you know, a puddle that's only a few inches deep is one thing to go across, even if it was wide. Of course, a river is something different depending on the speed of the water and the depth of the water and the surface of the river bottom, et cetera, et cetera, which, which we'll all get into. But, but I wanted to start, instead of talking about how we we're going to make this bike go across a river, I thought we should start with talking about the rider, the rider and the gear the rider is wearing. Because I have a bit of a problem with this, and I know I've mentioned this to you before, but I have a bit of a problem getting my feet wet because I have an outdoors background where you do everything to stay dry and, and not get all sweaty. And I mean, you get, you think about these things because you put yourself at risk. And of course, if you're riding in in any sort of temperate climate, any climate where you might, maybe in, in the mountains, it could be warm in the valleys and you go up in the mountains, it'll get cold. And if you have soaking wet feet, that can end up being a problem for you. So So footwear, let's start there. How do we deal with that? Well, we've always thought you should wear a good adventure bike boot. So it's way above the ankle, covering the shin, fits properly. It's got good closure systems. The tread is very, very important and relative to water crossings. 
because I walk a lot into the water before I ride into it, or I've got to walk back across to the side I started on, maybe to assist another rider. Mm -hmm. So one of the pluses of paying a little bit more for a premium adventure boot brand is its waterproofness. So I've ridden for many, many years. I think I'm on my third pair now of the City Adventure Pro, it's called. And it doesn't have the kind of the structure protection of the Crossfire boot. That's more motocross or really hard enduro. I have one pair of those as well. But if I'm going up to the Yukon or an area that I know there's going to be water crossings, I'm like you. I don't like wet feet and wet socks. Mm -hmm. Moisture in the boot, if it's a temperate climate, kind of warm, that's going to be mold and stink. If it's really cold, temperatures, you know, up in the Yukon in the fall or something, or early spring riding in most parts of Canada, you get your feet wet because your boots aren't waterproof. Or maybe you step into the water and it's, you know, above the boot, obviously, you're going to get your feet wet. So in addition to a really good boot that's waterproof, there are waterproof socks that are available. I've got a couple different pairs, but they're very clammy. So they do hold the water out, but my feet sweat in them. And that leads to really smelly boots. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, I mean, if you get your insoles wet in your boots, that water is still going to evaporate, even just seeping through the the leather or the outside of the boot and cool your foot as well. So it is a problem getting your boots wet on the inside, even if we have waterproof socks on. And the other thing was, you're mentioning these adventure boots you have. Now, I don't know about the CD CD adventure boots, but generally motorcycle boots that, that I've seen they, the tongue doesn't come all the way to the top. So even if it's waterproof, you're probably only talking, what, two-thirds of the boot that's, that's yes. waterproof? Yeah, less than a foot. Right. And uh, what happens, you could be in a little stream or a big puddle that's, you know, only six inches deep. But there's a bow wave from your front tire pushing water in front of you. And when that hits the opposite bank, it comes tsunami-like back at you. And it's going to go over top of your boots. It could even be higher than your air filter entry. So that's something that you've got to be cautious of. But for boots, I really like waterproof ones. There's nothing worse if it's really cold, having uh, freezing feet. Mm-hmm. What do you do then if you come to a crossing that you're going to have to walk it that's over that one foot? So you, you know you're going to take water in. Yeah, if it's a, like in Colorado, there was all kinds, and on the BDR route, the Northeast BDR, they'd had a lot of rain in New Hampshire, Vermont, New York. There was a lot of water on the trails, not so much crossings in the sense of creeks or rivers, but big monster puddles in tire ruts. So I would often stop, even though I was at the back, And I could see bike marks that look like the silhouette of a motorcycle lying on its side. So (laughs) I knew people in front of me had had trouble. 
And that was a message to me. Eh, take your time, park the bike off to the side of the trail, especially if it's on a corner. You don't leave your bike in the middle of the trail because there could be other people coming really fast around the corner. Maybe it's locals or somebody with four wheels. They don't really care how deep the water is. So I park it right off to the edge, even if I have to find something to put under the side stand. And if I'm in a forest, there's usually dead branches around. I'll find a measuring device, a big stick. And if I can walk on the bank and stick it into where I think I'm going to place my front tire, I'll get an idea on how deep it is. What I won't get, unless you can get in there with your boots, is what's the bottom like? Is it clay? Is it mud? Is there a nice stone bottom where I can get some traction for exiting the big puddle or stream? So you can learn a lot and that will help your success in getting over to the other side by taking a minute and figuring it out off the bike. What about um, pants? You know, you're wearing your pants there. They're going to possibly get wet at the bottom depending on how deep it is. Do you have any, any advice for that? Yeah, well, the same thing. A lot of people will wear um, a non-waterproof suit, pants and jacket. Mm -hmm. And maybe it starts to rain. They'll throw the rain pants and a rain jacket over top. I did that for years and years. But it gets very, very hot if it's, you know, a warm day, warm climate, wherever you're riding. So what I preferred, the last two suits I've had are this, um, it's called the Enduro Guard suit. It's from BMW. And, and Climb has a lot of waterproof product as well, or Klim. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. How do you say it, Jim? Climb, that's, that's what I've been told. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've been told. But I've been corrected by other people. Anyway... Having a waterproof pant does help because obviously it just, it's easier to clean as well. But um, getting soaked up to your knees, if it's really cold, it's just like the socks. It's miserable after. Sure, you've got to cross the river or the big creek, but now you're freezing. Mm. So I like waterproof pants. What I have found is you do have to, like if you wash them, I ride a lot in the summer, so, you know, you want to be somewhat presentable. It's bad enough when I take my helmet off, you know, <laughs> but if my uh, pants look really beat up or muddy, I try to brush it off when it's dry, but I end up washing my suits quite a bit, and that seems to deteriorate the waterproofing ability on the surface of the Gore-Tex or whatever it is. So I've bought the stuff from hiking stores. It's like a waterproofing spray. And there's all kinds of products. Is it called Quick? Where you kind of spray it on and then put it in the dryer to heat it into the material. There's lots of waterproofing available. Yeah, there's, there's some that you can put in, like when you're actually washing the garment. As a matter of fact, yes. when you wash the garment, you should not use regular soap for things that are, are supposed to be waterproof because it has surfactants in it yes. and it makes the water go through is what it does. So you need to get the proper cleaner. That's a good thing to, to mention here. 
the proper cleaner for washing any sort of waterproofing jackets I, or pants. Yeah, exactly. I knew you would know more about it. <laughs> well, it's nice to have something up on you, Clinton. That's, that's <laughs> oh, good. Oh, no, he's got lots. <laughs> okay, so um, what, let, let's talk about before we get into, into actually doing the crossing. What about the bike? Is there anything we can do for the bike to prepare for this sort of thing? Yeah, if we're in the old days racing enduros, not that I did a lot of it, but a lot of motocross bikes have carburation vent tubes, very thin, eighth-inch clear vent tubes running down under the skid plate and they could actually suck up water so we would always trim those so that wouldn't happen we would also take tubes of white silicone and go around engine casings and gaskets and anywhere water could get in so we could almost submerge the engine below the actual air box intake which is often up under the seat or up up high near the gas tank on a side venting system. So we would do our best. And you've seen the Jeeps or even ATVs that do a lot of water. They'll put an additional high snorkel. So like it looks like a periscope, but so the engine can breathe and you can, you know, you can submerge it right up under the seat then. Mm-hmm. Now, me personally, I really like my bikes. I don't want to take them in mudding uh, or my ATVs that I have. We don't do big mud. We'll go around it. Some people live for that. You know, they've got great big aggressive tires and snorkel kits. They relocate the rad on their ATV. I'm not into that, but definitely on my adventure bikes, even the old beat up ones, Whenever you take it into muddy, muddy water, you're putting that into bearing surfaces. If you do ingest it into the engine, that's all kinds of fine silicate sand, which motors don't like. So I try to avoid that. Right. And you mentioned the, the carburetor. And I know there's probably not a lot of people riding around with carburetors. Well, hi, there might be there might be quite a few, actually. I, I don't know what the percentage would be. But if it, the, the carburetor vent tube that runs down, the problem with it you were saying about sucking up water or you sitting there in the water and it plugs it and it doesn't allow the, uh, the carburetor to fill and you, you have stalling issues. But if you put a T somewhere between the carburetor and the end piece and then run another vent tube up higher up on the bike and curl it up, that will allow it to breathe even if you're in the water. And and the idea of using the T is that if you were just to take that tube and, and pull it up instead of it hanging down, pull it up and curl it up somewhere else, something can run into it. So if you get water splashed up into it, it will run right into your carburetor. If you exactly. don't, but by putting the T in, if the water goes in the upper hose, it goes down to the T and then it drains out just like it should onto the ground. So a T in your carburetor vent is a is a handy thing to add to it. That's a great tip. I've seen them. They're little white plastic tees. You get them for the diameter of whatever hose you're working with. Exactly. Yep. And yeah, that's another a great one up. tip. And with ATVs and things like it, you used to vent everything with, with, with four-wheeling, for instance. You'd vent your axles. So every axle has a vent anywhere where you have a cavity, as you know, where um, things can heat up. You need a vent to let the expanded air out and air go back in when it contracts again. And the tubes are run up higher on the frame or up into the body as high as you possibly can. But with ATVs, I noticed that now they're, many for many years now, they're using sort of an expandable, um, almost a diaphragm, which is yes. a, like a, this collapsible thing. 
it plugs it, it keeps it as a sealed unit, really. And this thing will expand as the air expands and contract as the air contracts in the axle. The the one thing we don't have with motorcycles that I wanted to mention was, or, or sometimes we don't, are sealed wheel bearings. Often you get a wheel bearing that's sealed and, and then you get another wheel bearing that's open. Yeah, a lot of um, stock bearings aren't sealed. You can look at them and the the actual balls are exposed and you pack them with grease. And they're a little more susceptible to get not only water, but grit, uh, soft sand silica in them. And then they dry out with heat. The grease is dissipated. And then you're going to go through a bearing really quick. Mm -hmm. So for people that are doing water a lot, that they really should pull their wheels apart Another issue, maybe with older adventure bikes that have a drum rear brake, I've got a couple of vintage GS BMWs. And if I was running quite a bit of water, I would periodically pull the back wheel apart because if you get the water in the drum and it sits there for any length of time and, and the the heat of brake use doesn't dissipate that water away, evaporate it away. It'll actually delaminate the glue that's holding the brake pad onto the shoe. And you'll subsequently have no brakes. Mm-hmm. Or and find your brake locking up, which often happens when you have Yeah, a, exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's mud and crud in there. So the, if you do an hour's worth of running through puddles, screaming your head off, you really should do a couple hours of maintenance. But well, mud's corrosive, isn't it? I mean, I know we're going to side thing here, but mud's corrosive. So when it sits in there, I mean, it, it corrodes, well, anything that it's against. Yeah, it can be a real mess. So I've bought bikes where the brake is sticking or it didn't work, and I'd have to put new wheel bearings, take the, the drum brake pivot arm apart, grease it all up, you know, use a wire brush, a wire wheel, and new brake pads and sandpaper the inner drum Mm -hmm. just because somebody's left it sit when it was wet inside. Mm, That's a good point. So what a lot of people will do with these old GSs is once you're up out of the other side of the creek, drag your rear brake a little as you're riding and that will get rid of the water on the brake pad surface. You're talking. You're referring to a drum rear brake yes. there, right? But yes. still, even with even with discs, it's good to do, isn't it? Yes, just cleans it out a little bit, yeah, and it. it's peace of mind. You don't want to go to a brake and realize I don't seem to be decelerating <laughs> at all. Well, especially yeah, if you have a steep you know downhill after that or something like That's that after right. you've done your your crossing. Hey, the other thing I was wondering about the bike is is do you recommend that? And, and I would think we would. We should know where our air intake. Is what Big time. Be. Okay. Can you talk that's about ha- that? Yeah, that's happened on um, some adventure tours where there's a little bit of a creek crossing and we'll stop. And if I'm near enough, I'll do it. You know, does anybody want a little tip on how to get across this? And those that don't, because sometimes people's cup of knowledge is so full, there's I'm envious of those people, but there's just no more room. And so they'll charge across, crash with the bike running, 
So if you see the water rushing up towards you as you're tipping over, hit your kill switch as quickly as possible. I guess we'll talk about hydrolock later. Sure, yeah, we'll we'll get to that afterwards. But the point is, though, if you know where your air intake is, then at least you have an idea of two things, really. One, what depth water you can go through to begin with. Which would usually be, well, I don't even know. I, I think you have a bike. Is, isn't your HP2 have a, doesn't it have a really yeah. low intake? Yeah, you've heard that story, I guess, Jim, where I, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Thanks yeah. for bringing that up, Jim. <laughs> but anyway, so it's very good to know where your air intake is because that is Absolutely. obviously a, a problem for your motorcycle. Your motorcycle cannot run on water. So um, if, if it sucks in water, that's going to be an issue. So know that. And then also, if you do happen to drop it, knowing where your air intakes are gives you a, a much better idea of what's going to happen and how fast it's going to happen. Um, okay, so is, is there anything else you had on there for, for preparing the bike? Yeah, just preparing your toolkit because it's one thing to know where it is. What if you do hydrolock it and you've got to take out the spark plugs? Uh, Absolutely right. a key thing. What if you don't have a spark plug wrench? And we experienced this on a trip where a gentleman dropped his R1200 BMW GS in a really deep creek and it was running. So he got water in the engine and he didn't have, you need a thin wall spark plug. It's a 14 millimeter spark plug wrench for a GS BMW. It does not come stock with the toolkit. So you have to invest in that and take it with you or hope that the sweep rider has one as I had with me. And you can't get the regular thickness of a a standard spark plug wrench. It won't fit. You need this extremely thin wall, which is marketed for many engines use this. And without that, you're not getting the plugs out. The plugs are the tiniest spark plugs you've ever seen. They're very, very thin and minute. So when tightening them from previous experience, be very careful you don't break it because mm-hmm. the porcelain will actually snap if you over torque these little tiny ones. Uh, that's one of the reasons you use a, a dedicated, a proper spark plug socket because they have a, a rubber bushing in them that helps support that porcelain and as you're doing it up. And if you're just using a regular socket, then it's very easy to have it tilt over. And it's probably not machined inside or cast inside in a way to um, be concerned about clearance for the, the top of the spark plug. That's right. If you break the spark plug off in the cylinder, uh, you're not going to be riding for a while. That's a big job. No. And that's where you'll wish you had your, your spares. But, you know, it's funny with that thin wall uh, spark plug socket that you find, you do find it a fair bit. I've always wondered with that, really, was there not enough room here to just machine this out a tiny, we're talking like a 16th of an inch, not even, maybe yes. a 32nd of an inch or something like that. And you're thinking, is, was there not enough room here? I mean, is that that tight tolerance or is this just a way to make things a little more complicated for the do-it-yourselfer? I don't know. I'm not sure either if there's an engineering benefit to it, but I often thought that. Why yeah. would this be so tight? It's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't doesn't seem to make much sense. But okay, so that's a really good point. That, that, yeah, that you, if you don't have your tools, you're, you're going to be hooped. So this is um, this is all stuff that you got to think about and plan for before you get to the water crossing, not as you get to the water crossing. So so let's just uh, let's go through the the water crossing itself then. We're 
We're going to take just a quick break. I'm going to tell you about three things. Then when we come back, we're going to dig right into that step-by-step water crossing. Stay with us. Moto Camp Nerd is a store for motorcycle camping gear. In fact, according to Ben and Mary Williams, the founders, it's the only store like it. Because what they do is they geek out on camping gear for motorcyclists. In fact, they say that everything they stock is specifically chosen for performance, bulk, and weight for us motorcyclists. Now, Ben and Mary are also motorcycle campers, and they're continuously researching and testing gear to find the best choices for us riders. It's a passion-driven store, and Ben and Mary are more than willing to answer any questions you have and help you sort out your best options. This is amazing because you've probably been into an outdoor store and you've, you've asked for help, and if you mention motorcycle, generally they just have no clue what we're talking about. And we want to talk with people who know how we think. There's nothing better than dealing with people who know and understand what you're talking about when you're asking for something. You can shop at Moto Camp Nerd online but you can also walk into their brick-and-mortar store in Trinity, North Carolina. And they stock brand names like Big Agnes, Nemo, Cedar Summit, and, and many more. Their website is motocampnerd.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Motocampnerd.com. Pegweighting is part of controlling your bike. And to pegweight properly, you need a proper place to put your foot. And that comes in a quality foot peg. IMS Products makes a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs designed for exactly the way you ride. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Giant Loop believes lighter and simpler is better, and how and where we ride shouldn't be dictated by what's strapped onto our motorcycles. Riding is just plain more fun when unnecessary weight and bulk are removed. Sound thought process, I think. Giant Loop eliminates elements focusing on what's needed to serve the product's mission. No extra straps, no extra buckles. Instead, each product is purpose-built to enhance the riding experience for those who want modular, customizable packing systems that's durable, stable, intuitive, and lightweight. Giant Loop Moto is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. GiantLoopMoto.com. What's the first thing we're going to start off with with water crossing as we come up to a, let's say it's a river? Well, we've got to know how deep it is to avoid what we just talked about. Um, how much of a drop off in height is there for entering the river? Is it a two-foot drop-off, a three-foot? Do you have to, you know, do the evil Knievel jump into the river to get down into it? Um, because that may be beyond our skill sets and make the river crossing that much more dangerous. You don't want to wipe out by losing the front end as you go in. So this is all part of... The assessment. So what you're talking about is the first thing you're going to do is is sort of, you mentioned earlier, you stop, you get off your bike, or at least even if you're going to sit there and do it, you have to do your full assessment, which includes all these things you're talking about. Exactly. So there's the option A that a lot of people choose is, ah, I'm just going to give her. <laughs> and they get in there and lots of throttle. It's too deep. It's too slippery. Maybe there's existing ruts or obstacles, you know, if it's a real heavy-duty mountain stream, glacier-fed, 
there's a lot of energy and current that could move boulders into the crossing path. So that's why I'd rather be a little, take a little longer and walk across first. I'd rather get me wet than my internal engine wet. And I'll use a stick possibly. And you can tell if there's visible current before you put a toe in there. If you see tree limbs going by at quite a pace, maybe there's an alternative <laughs> that we should talk about is, you know, is there water crossings that really you shouldn't go into? Absolutely there is. Go around. Mm -hmm. Or turn back so, because yeah, the, the so alternative could be really, really bad. It could be a lot of energy waste time and could cost you money if you damage the engine. Mm -hmm. I remember some years ago seeing a video of a guy, it was, it was a flood that was going on and he had a, a small, maybe it was a 250 or something like that, but he rode right into the floodwaters. And I thought like floodwaters are, you know, that that's just a no go because floodwaters are abnormal, which means that the flows are much higher and in places where they wouldn't otherwise be. And they tend to wash things out. So what, you know, the road that was there may no longer be there. And in this case, it wasn't, this guy got, I mean, it was life-threatening. He, he got, you probably saw this video. This is some years back and he got washed into the bush and he tried to hold onto his bike. He eventually let go of his bike and, and luckily he survived, but um, yeah, crazy. Yeah. I've actually seen it happen at a rally in Eastern Canada called the Fundy Rally. And the one year there was two guys who I know quite well with small displacement bikes. Uh, they rode 250 WR Yamahas. Oh no, one guy, Adam was on a 650 KLR. So they managed to get across this river and it was like an enduro competition rally, and they actually won. So the second year, uh, I was with a group of BMW executives, and we were racing as well. We got to the same river crossing before the two gentlemen that had won it the year before. And I stopped, and it was really high current, Fast flowing, and the river was much higher because of hurricane volumes of rain had happened the week before. Mm. So even though the whole route had been safety ridden by the organizers two days before, 24 hours of rain will change it. So I said to my fellow BMW guys, you know what, let's go around. I know a, a paved route around it's going to take us longer, but I don't want to risk watering my bike. And they reluctantly agreed because they really wanted to try it. Well, just as we were turning around, the two fellows who had won the previous year come flying up. And I stopped them. I'm going, guys, it's too deep and it's too fast. No, no, we did this last year. I'm going, I know you did, but it's not the same river. Go look at it. And one chucklehead went in anyway uh, the second guy, Adam, on the KLR, wisely let his friend go first. <laughs> and this, this guy's name was Bogdan. He actually floated downstream on his bike. Oh. That's how strong, how deep it was and how strong the current was. And he just went out of sight. He thought, my God, is he going to end up in the Atlantic Ocean? <laughs> but luckily... There was a curve in the river 
and he ended up on the opposite bank where we found him when we all went around. And it took about half an hour of towing his bike with the KLR before it sputtered to life. Surprised it did. But they got pretty well last place because they had to find a gas station, buy some automotive oil, change the oil a couple of times before they could safely continue. Mm. Wow. And that could have ended differently too. I mean, it's, it's, you know, chuckle about that because of the way it, it, it turned out. But I mean, that's a really dangerous situation. Yeah. Are you a good swimmer should be one of the questions in your mind before you tackle big stuff. Yeah. Do you have a flotation device with you? <laughs> no. And, and that's, that's really important. And that's part of that assessment process. So, so you were saying, so you want to check the level, you want to check the current, yeah, do your best to check the, the bed and the entry and the exit. Yes. Okay. So, so with that, then what, what do you do? You come up with a, a plan? Yeah, definitely. So I've stopped. I'm checking it all out, especially if I haven't been there before. So we're returning to both the Colorado. There's not a lot of water crossings in the Yukon, but the other trips I went on this past summer, 2022, was Colorado BDR and the Northeast BDR. We're returning to those fantastic trails and gravel roads. And where there was water crossings, Um, I'll remind people, you know, all of us got through it last year, but maybe there's been more rain. So still take a minute and do it very, very cautiously. Especially if it's flat ground, you don't need third gear to get across big puddles. Mm -hmm. Because when you lose traction... Uh, one of our instructors says, ride at the speed you're comfortable crashing with. I like that. (laughs) So I'm in first gear and I'm covering my clutch. That's absolutely critical because if you hit a slippery spot and the back wheel loses traction, often the bike will turn 90 degrees, 180 degrees without any steering wheel input, handlebar input, So when it breaks loose, if the throttle gets you into trouble, the clutch will get you out. So your two fingers have to be resting on the clutch, in my opinion, because if your left hand is completely around the left grip, when they're screaming in your helmet, instinctively, you grip the handlebars white knuckled really tight it's almost impossible to then release your left fingers to pull the clutch in. Mm -hmm. But the secret is we've got to get rid of the wheel slip, take that power slide that's happening at the back away. And the best way to do that is not with chopping the throttle. It's with slipping the clutch back in. That sort of makes me think of something else I want to ask you about when we're talking about this is I want to ask you about the hazards, first of all, what what hazards we can expect while going across. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about was change in direction. Because it seems that anytime we have a change in direction, we have to, or we do change direction, we have a stability and traction issue. In other words, if you're planning your, your route to cross the river and you've got two turns in your plan to cross, you've got two areas that could be potential problems just because of change of direction. Yeah, big time. 
Um, it's hard to envision when the front contact patch of the tire is under the water, but the same analogy is sand. If you go to turn hard to the right in deep sand, the front wheel will want to slide out to the left because a change of front wheel direction will cause challenges to traction. So crossing a river or big puddles, we want to minimize direction change. If the back wheel sliding around, that's recoverable with the clutch. But if you lose the front wheel, that's not usually recoverable, mm. especially in mud. It, it happens so quickly, you'll probably not get your hands off the bars or your foot down. So um, some people go in and they say, you know what, I'm going to go through, it looks like ATVs or trucks have used this. I'm going to go through the left tire track. And then it gets really deep or rocky or whatever. And they decide, you know what, I think I'm going to go over to the right tire track. That's usually a crash. Mm -hmm. So stick with what you're doing. But um, the goal is to look to the other side. And part of it's psychological. You're going to say to yourself, I can do this. I'm going to the other side. And that mindset in addition to looking where you want to go, will be half the battle. If you're extremely hesitant and tentative, you might not have enough momentum. If you're not covering the clutch and you hit a little obstacle in there or the back wheel slips, those are all points that can lead to not making it successfully across. So to your point then with, with the change of direction, so what we're trying to do is do the straightest crossing we can possibly do. And then with that thought process, should we also be attempting to do a sort of a perpendicular or 90 degree entry and exit? Because if those exits are off uh, on a different angle, wouldn't that create another problem? It's, a, it's kind of a direction change, or at least you're hitting the edge of something on an angle. Does that make sense? Yes. Dropping into a river from a high bank is pretty easy to do on an angle. You just give it a shot of throttle and the back wheel is going to drive you forward. But getting out of a bank on an angle is almost like crossing a big log on an angle. Right. You may well get the front tire up on the bank, but the back tire is just going to slide out mm -hmm. if it's slippery. That's a very, very challenging exit. With our big, heavy adventure bikes, if you're riding a 250, it's a lot easier. But you have five, six hundred pound motorcycles, especially if you're loaded up, it makes it uh, far more exciting trying to get out. But that's where you pull up with your, your 650, 850, 1150, 1250, whatever, and wish you were on a 250. Absolutely. So as far as hazards go, when we're about to, when we're doing our overall plan and maybe we're, we're thinking about getting going, what other hazards could there be that, that we may have to deal with with the crossing? Well, there's most trails are multi-use. There could be Jeeps, four-wheel drive trucks, ATVs, anything with four wheels. If they get stuck and they frame out, so the bottom of the engine and the frame is on in the mud or dirt, and the wheels have created very, very deep ruts. Uh, so often what people will do is find some old logs, rocks, and throw it into the tire ruts. 
And that's probably not going to bother the next Jeep or truck coming along. But if you or I are coming along, Jim, and, you know, I've got good traction. I walked for a little bit and it seems fine. I think I can do this. And then I would convince you to go first. (laughs) Which I wouldn't do, but anyway. Yeah. (laughs) But then the obstacle that somebody's thrown in there, or it could even be roots if there's trees close to where we're trying to cross. Roots on bigger trees could be 30 feet from the tree. And uh, that's going to mess you up because tree roots are extremely slippery. And if the water's churned up a little dark because it's got silica and you can't really see clearly, then that's definitely an obstacle. So the secret is be up on your boots, on your toes, covering the clutch. So you're modulating your momentum and power with the clutch, but you're prepared for that sudden stop. If I bump into a rock or log, I'll light it up a bit. Give it more power delivery by letting the clutch out a bit and a shot of throttle. But if you're riding at five kilometers an hour with a steady throttle and the clutch is all the way out, when you hit that obstacle, it's going to stall out your bike. You probably fall down Mm -hmm. because there isn't the time to pull the clutch in and keep the engine running. And you won't have the momentum with that obstacle to get over it. So again, I'm preaching about the clutch. (laughs) But you're also talking about speed here. I'm picking that up. I mean, you're talking about speed. In other words, you, you've, there's a, there's an ideal speed for this and it isn't just going super slow because super slow is going to get you in trouble as well or could. Yes. Right. Sorry. And Clinton, just before we were going further, I I just want to go back to you, what you're mentioning about people putting rocks and stuff in that is particularly possible or more possible at mud holes, not so much river crossings, could be river crossings, but mainly like, so if you come up to a puddle or something like that, that could really be a problem, especially, and and you gave the example of somebody running it the previous year, the previous week, all it takes is somebody to come in an hour before you get stuck with a big four wheel drive, winch themselves out and you've got four massive holes there that will put you over the handlebars. Yes, absolutely. Which I've, I've been there in front of nine customers. It's right. I so, shouldn't be telling these stories. People are going to cancel their, their Well, no, bookings. you learn from experience. That's the whole idea. Like That's It's right. nice to know, you know, it's nice to know you've been there. You, you've done that. Oh, have you, I ever. You've made those <laughs> mistakes. So let's let's just talk about speed for a second, though. So you, you sort of alluded there that you can't go too slow. We can't go too fast. How fast do we go then? Because I've, and I know we've mentioned this before. We've talked about this before at different times, but I've seen videos. I see videos all the time where it seems like every time you see a water crossing is where somebody whips through the water crossing. And I start to scratch my head and think, well, wait a second, maybe maybe they're onto something here because they'll go whipping through at this tremendous speed. They'll bounce off a rock, bounce off here, they get flopped all around. And next thing you know, they're on the other side and thinking, well, it worked for them that time. Yeah, looks great on YouTube, but it's crazy to do it. It's way too risky. So too fast is usual and no clutch control is usually the reasons people crash in water crossings or they didn't take the time to see do they have the skill air filter height to be able to get across this and out the other side they didn't do their assessment and and their plan exactly no homework at all so 
if you think of your front tire going through a water surface, it's kind of like the bow of a boat. And water will spray up, obviously. You'll see it in all the still shots. I'm going to send you some where, you know, we've got guys on big adventure bikes smoking through big puddles. Mm -hmm. And the water will go higher than the windshield. You're sending those to put in the show notes? Yes. Okay, good. I've got some great shots of of people where I've said, okay, don't go too fast. (laughs) And I guess their concept of too fast was not what I was envisioning, but it's too late to, you know, I'm not stepping in front of them to say slow down. (laughs) Well, it's part of a fear thing too, isn't it? Because you're you're a little fearful of the water, maybe very fearful of the water. And you're thinking, if I go over it faster, I'll get through it quicker. There's some sort of something about the mentality of that. Yeah. Usually you just crash faster. It, (laughs) It is all relative to how deep it is and what traction's underneath. If it's, you know, a gravel bottom on this creek that you're crossing or big puddles, then you can haul through it pretty good. Mm -hmm. But I have had on um, enduro bikes hauling way too fast through water because I came up on the puddle suddenly, uh, didn't have my eyes up enough. And I hit that in third gear, tapped out on a 250 two-stroke, so I'm flying along pretty good. The force of the water that's coming in kind of a jet wake off of the front tire was strong enough that even though I was standing up, it took one of my boots right off the foot peg, Mm. and I almost crashed. So water is very, very strong if you're going fast, and if you go too fast, the wake coming off your front tire could completely soak you. Hopefully you've got waterproof gear. Now your bike's covered in muddy water. And for what effect? I just don't get it. Well, well, let me, let me ask then. So if I was saying to you, Clinton, give me some advice here. I, I, I want to make a, for any water crossing, how do I know when it's too fast or when it's too slow? A lot of it comes from experience. And if you ride enough water on a big adventure bike, you kind of get a feel for what your skill sets are and what your bike can do. Um, On this Colorado trip I was mentioning, there was a a nice fellow named Tyler had a 690 KTM single, really aggressive rider. Like the front wheel was in the air. He, he, his front wheel didn't wear out very much. Let's put it that way. Awesome guy, but he just loves um, really aggressive riding. So hills, water, everything. He was hammering through the puddles that I was putting through. He got to the other side most of the time, but he was actually getting air as he came up the banks, which I was not. And it looks amazing on videos and still pictures, but uh, that bike allowed him to do it easier than my 1250 BMW. Plus, that was his bike, and I was on a loner bike, so I didn't <laughs> want to go crazy on it and no, smash always, it up. That always affects it too, yes. But the size of the bike, uh, maybe a 250 we talked about before, you can probably safely go faster through puddles and creeks and rivers than you could a 1250. Mm. 
let, let me try and corner you here, Clinton, because okay. what, you, what you said was, you said, well, a lot of it has to do with experience. Okay, so what if I don't have the experience then? What can you tell me about speed to, to let me understand what feels too fast and what feels too slow? I think I'll use the word controlled speed. So again, it's enough momentum that if I happen to hit a little obstacle in there that I didn't see, that I can bump over it. But the key thing is with controlled speed is I have power ready to apply because I'm slipping my clutch a little bit. I've got two fingers over the clutch. And so I'm going to control my traction loss and my momentum loss if I hit something that's an obstacle. Hmm, okay. I like that. Controlled speed. I understand that. Okay. So yeah, so that's when you're in control of, of the speed that you're doing. And we're talking really in control. So in other words, you're, you're on that clutch and you can afford to pull the clutch in and deal with whatever situation you're into. Yeah, because you can go 25 kilometers an hour and it'll be in control until you're not. Right. And that's going to happen faster and more likely to happen if you're not covering the clutch, you're not standing up, you're not doing all the tricks that we talk about to get you through. Okay. And you just, you just said not standing up. So that was the other thing I was going to ask you about is your recommended way to cross is to stand up. Absolutely. Just like deep sand, steer the bike with your boots, peg steering, peg weighting. So you're going across the big puddle and it seems the bike wants to go to the right. And that was not your target, and that's not your goal. Lean on the left foot peg with more weight in that boot, and that steers it back where you want to go. So that all comes from skill sets practiced on dry land. It's the same thing in the water. The bike physically will respond to peg steering. Okay, so now I think what mo- what happens most commonly with water crossings is at least the benign thing that happens is you end up getting to a spot where you bump into something, something goes wrong. Maybe the the rear wheel starts to spin. You pull the clutch in, you slow down a little bit too much and the momentum is gone and the bike stops. Like, well, what's the first thing you do? For instance, how do you stop the bike from going over? So let's say you're, everything's going good. You're halfway across and you do, you front wheel bumps into a rock or a log or it drops into a big rut and your forward momentum stops. Um, That's tough if you're going really, really fast. If the bike stops, it's almost impossible for you to hang on to the bars enough that you don't, uh, that you stay with the bike. If you've got a good grip on the bars, you may well end up doing a handstand before you flop over the front fender. And of course, I, let, let, sorry to interrupt you here, but that, w- yeah. that would tell you you're going too fast, right? I mean, that's Big obviously time. when you're going too fast. If you, don't, if you don't think that if you came to an abrupt stop, you're going to stay on the bike, that you're going too fast. Way too fast. So if you're doing a controlled speed and the bike just stops because you've hit something mm-hmm. and pull the clutch in immediately because keeping the bike running is important. And... Again, people without their fingers over the left clutch lever, when the bike hits something, it stalls the engine. And when the bike stalls and the clutch is out, 
the front suspension compresses and it dives down. And because it's got springs and oil, it bounces back up. Right, yeah. that, that is enough to tip most people over. Mm. So as you mentioned, Jim, a weight shift might help balance it. Having good balance is key. But if you have to put one or both feet down, that's better than dropping the bike in the creek. Right. And this is, this is when it gets difficult to, to put your foot down a creek because often, at least, at least for me, every time I got to put my foot down, there's never a solid surface right there for me. As a matter of fact, even reaching the bottom is sometimes difficult. So how do you handle that? Yeah. So a big issue for adventure bike riders is sometimes the bike is very heavy. If we're thinking of most adventure bikes are 500 cc's as the small one and up. So we're on a five, 600 pound vehicle. Mm -hmm. When it does stop, whether it's on dry land or in a creek, it's hard to keep it upright sometimes, especially on uneven ground or slippery ground. So what we get customers to do is shift your weight, like lean your body to the opposite side of the bike. If it feels like it's falling to the right, you've got to hang your butt shift your hips and your body mass to the left and then maybe put the left foot down to prevent the drop. Because mm. uh, we don't want to drop it at any time, but one of the worst places is to drop it in a muddy creek or puddle. Right, and by doing that hip shift when you're in the creek or like say you're doing the water crossing, that allows you to get right down to whatever is at the bottom, whether it be lower because it's always uneven surfaces or slippery rocks. It might slide your foot out further, yet you're still keeping the bike vertical. So you're kind of halfway getting off the bike in a way, aren't you? Sort of sliding yes. off to the one side. The folks that have an advantage at that time, um, I can think of two of our instructors who were five, five, five foot six. Uh, that's how they stop every time they stop. They can't yeah. touch the ground. Right. So they literally slide one foot up in the air, slide their butt completely off the seat until they get one foot down onto terra firma or one toe. So they have an advantage because they've practiced that their whole riding career where a lot of people with longer legs fall down. Well, and, and if you had really long legs, you'd probably be fine, but it's, it's almost the in-between. It's the, it's those of us who are, have long enough legs that you can balance it at most times. And, and that works like when you're on level surfaces, but when you're in an off-road situation, it doesn't even have to be in water, but it can be something else that you need to do that hip shift. Otherwise you're going to put your foot down. It's not going to touch your bike's going to tilt over. And once that starts to happen, you know, bad things happen after that. Sure does. And we've talked about it before. Uh, just to sum it up, but you're putting your foot down and you're trying to hold up a real heavy motorcycle. Essential to have a really good enduro boot, nice and tight, good ankle support going up the shin. And it'll help you to have an enduro sole. So it's got tread. If you're using a motocross boot, which is far more available in a retail sense, um, you know, it'll protect you with a rock coming up or you fall over, it lands on your ankle, but you have zero or almost zero traction in mud with a, a flat motocross boot with very little tread. Mm. So if you're going to get a motocross boot, do what you do and replace, get one with replaceable soles 
and put a an aggressive soul on it. Yes, right. that's what I do with those um, CD crossfires. Right. They uh, you can they have these little you use a screwdriver and you take turn these little gizmos and the whole sole comes off in your hand, you put a different one on. So I take the motocross one off. I have two pairs if anybody needs them. And I put these uh, enduro ones on, really good soft tread. So they stand up to riding on sharp pegs, but they give me great traction when I'm helping people in slippery conditions and myself. Just to be clear, you, you just said that if anyone needs them, you're not offering them up for free for somebody who's listening to this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, right. Uh, okay, so so we've come to this point in the river. We've we've ended up stopping. We didn't want to, but we stopped. We did the hip shift thing that you described, and we're we're we've got the bike. It's still upright, and our one leg is maybe on the seat, and our foot is down on on the ground underneath the water. What do we do now? Yeah, the odd time I've actually put the side stand down if it had good purchase, good support under it. And then moved the obstacle, and then I do a better job of assessing the rest of the way across. Because maybe there's mm. two more big logs or rocks submerged. Maybe I'd be better to see if I could get out, turn perpendicular up the bank, and go through the trees around it. If there are tons of other junk in front of me submerged that I can't see. Mm-hmm. But I should have done that assessment before I ventured in there with the bike, it might be too late. But if I decide to continue and I've got the bike balanced, it hasn't dropped, hopefully it's still running. But if not, pull the clutch in, fire it up. Hopefully the level of the water isn't over top of your exhaust. If your engine all of a sudden all of a sudden sounds more Evan Rude-like, you're in deep water. Mm-hmm. The bike will run, but it doesn't sound very good. And then you do your best to continue, considering that it's slippery, so you don't just drop the clutch and light it up. You slip the clutch and hold it at a moment of power to the back wheel where you're not going to increase the chance of losing traction. So we modulate the power with the clutch and continue. Right. And and as you're saying, modulate, you're trying not to spin that tire. When you pull away, you're trying to do very slow start off. Absolutely. <laughs> Just crawling along. Okay. And um, now the worst thing, the absolute worst thing that can happen with a water crossing, and this is my concern always with water crossings, is is if you're unlucky enough to experience what's called an engine hydraulic, where water gets sucked into the intake either from dropping the bike or riding in too deep or, or too fast, and the water gets splashed up. And since water doesn't compress, the engine comes to a slamming halt, stopping, and uh, potentially causing some serious damage. Yeah, and that you're not riding that bike home. Uh, what happens more often is that water doesn't burn very well once it gets in the engine and it locks hydraulically. It doesn't cause any mechanical damage, but the engine won't run because it's full of water. Mm -hmm. So you've got to drag that bike out of the water, cross the river, puddle, whatever. Sometimes that requires a tow. Uh, I remember embarrassingly teaching 
hey, guys, why don't we learn how to tow my bike that I just hydrolocked? So I taught them with a tow rope how you do it from peg to peg, opposite sides of the bike. Mm-hmm. And then what I did on the side of the trail is I removed the spark plugs. I laid the bike over on its side with the key off, very important. And I tried to get the water out of the exhaust by laying it over. Sometimes with a few people, you have to lift the front wheel way up in the air. So gravity drains your exhaust pipes or pipe. But with it laying over on its side, the spark plugs were out. I had a twin cylinder, an old BMW. I put it in fifth gear. And then I slowly used the back wheel to expel the water that was in the engine. And I've seen people use the electric starter motor, and I don't recommend it. It's too abrupt. It hits too hard. And you've only got the little spark plug holes to get rid of that water and the exhaust pipe. So it's it's safer to put it in fifth gear, which means there's less compression going through the system. Mm-hmm. You'll never turn it over in first gear. It's just like bump starting an old standard car or motorcycle, it's really almost impossible to do in first gear. The wheel would just skid. There's too much compression. Mm -hmm. Too much gear reduction between the engine and the transmitter or the engine and the rear wheel. Right. It won't allow the back wheel to turn the engine over. But fifth gear, I move the wheel in the direction of travel with my hands. And the water will spurt out and tell onlookers, do not be looking down near the spark plug hole because you're going to get an eyeful of dirty water because it comes out of there quite some force. And uh, there's video of people doing this. You know, it's 10, 12 feet in the air, the water expelling. Now you've got the water out. If it's a carbureted system, you probably have to drain the float. So in an environmental sense, it might be better to tow the bike at that point to get it home. If you're by yourself, hopefully you've got a rag or something you could kind of absorb the fuel that you're going to drain out of the bottom of the carburetor because you've got to replenish that with gasoline that has no water in it because the bike's never going to fire if the carb float area has got water in it or it will start but then die shortly afterwards Mm -hmm. so if it's fuel injection you're a little lucky a couple of cycles turning it over it's going to start spraying unwatered gas undiluted gas into the system you've gotten the water out of the engine it may well start. It may take a while, but it should start. Mm-hmm. That's And that's, of course, provided you didn't do any damage when you went in. And, yes. and you have less chance of it if you do the, if you follow the things you said. You said about, you know, the speed, about being ready to shut that engine off. I mean, you feel yourself going over. That's when you want to kill it. If there's any, I guess if there's any thought at all, the bike is going over ever in water. Yeah, you definitely want to kill it first, right? Yes. That's uh, one of our instructors teaches that hover your right thumb over the kill switch 
and water crossings because he's fixed <laughs> his bike that he watered out and it was expensive. So that's his paranoia is doing it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, mine was, I don't want to crash in front of the students because that that diminishes the value they feel in the chief instructor. <laughs> and I don't want to water out my bike because that's using up their lesson and riding time. Mm-hmm. So I had to get towed back to our base area where we start and quickly grab another bike. So that's the key is to have a bunch of motorcycles so that if you damage one, you could just go back and grab the other one. I never thought that's a good excuse to have other bikes. Wow, that's good. I'm, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna tell Elizabeth that I need to get another one as a backup. That's right. A spare. You just, should. Have, everybody should have a spare. Absolutely. <laughs> So, um, so, okay. So that's, that's the horrible hydraulic. And you did mention earlier that part of one of the first things you said was in your preparation is make sure you have a toolkit that can pull, that that you can do the work on your bike and pulling your spark plugs out. As we know on some bikes is tremendously difficult. My bike is, there's a lot to take apart. So this, it's a big deal. Not only the chance of damage, but also doing it. If you've got one of the ones with the, the um, I forget what you call those motorcycles with the horizontally opposed cylinders with the spark plugs on the side. Yes. <laughs> I think you those call them, ones. I think you call them BMWs. But anyway, so, if you've got one of those, that's a lot easier to deal with. There's no doubt. So that's one, one real advantage to having that. Um, what about alternatives? What, so what, what do we do? What, what's an alternative we can do, if any, if we come to a water crossing and we're not comfortable riding across? Well, If we still want to cross or have to cross, you don't have to be on the bike. It might be safer to be, you have to be competent in it first. And again, that comes from practice. practice. Mm. Walk your bike across. So that means you're on the left side of the bike. It's just, if you've got a lot of experience pushing or walking your motorcycle from the left side, it's going to be really hard to do it with your body on the right-hand side of the bike. I do it quite a bit just because that's where I came up to that bike in a storage container. So I'm okay with it, but you still, how do you put the side stand down? It's a real hassle. You got to lean across the bike. So be on the left side of your bike, cover your clutch and only let your two left fingers out closest to your thumb enough to move the bike at a walking pace. And all the same attributes of getting through a puddle are exactly the same as when you're riding it. You keep the revs RPM up a bit in case you hit something and you can give it a little bit more clutch. And But you're, the clutch, it has to be uh, fingers on the clutch so you don't stall it. So when you say the keep the RPMs up a bit, you're keeping the RPMs up, but you're slipping the clutch. It's yes. not fully engaged. That's right. Just in case I need it. And that will not fry your clutch because there's no load on it. There's no weight on it. You're not stuck in the sand or against a rock or anything. You're moving. Mm. And lean the motorcycle towards your right hip. So the bike is leaning to the left. You could kind of support it on your body as you're crossing but you're never going to be comfortable doing that for the first time in the water. Practice it as we ask our customers to do. I was going to say we make them do, but we (laughs) suggest, we suggest you try this. And uh, that way 
if you need it, that skill set is there. Okay. And and that may not be heroic walking your motorcycle across, but it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, it, it certainly it helps you try and avoid that horrible hydraulic uh, that is that is always a possibility. Yeah. Another thing is vision assessment when you're arriving. If you see right in front of the trail that you were on for the last couple hours, there's a big puddle, ruts, whatever it is. And somebody has made a trail around that. What does that tell you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so either somebody didn't want to tackle it or it quite possibly is just too deep to cross and they've too tried tough. it. Yeah. It might be prudent to take the easier route rather than try to be a hero. And oh. then there's always the alternative of uh, maybe pretend you've stalled and wave someone else on. <laughs> Oh, I like this. Oh, I like this. This is this is a this is a more um, uh, clandestine. Let your friend go yes. first. Oh, I've stalled. Just give me. A, you go right ahead. I'll, I'll catch up to you. You don't have to you. ask. Them. I like yeah. that. Boy, you're sneaky. Uh, well, years of experience, Chip. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then I think a final option is you know there's no way around it. If you decide, you know what, that's just too deep. That's too crazy. I don't want to risk crashing in there, getting my bike possibly damaged, water locked, whatever. Uh, Do you have to go across? Like, is there, you know, a lion chasing you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But maybe turning around and finding another option is might be the prudent thing to do. And we did that a few times, not with water crossings, but when some of the mountain passes were just too taxing for the skill level of the participant, um, I lied to one guy and saying, you know what, this is just too much for me. What do you feel about this? Like, I don't know, I guess I'll try it if you really want to go, but man, that is ugly. And usually they'll say, you know what, that that's you're right. I'll I'll go with you. Let's go around. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, so so that's it. We we've got that covered. So as far as skills go, and a couple of times you alluded to this and you mentioned about different things that we should be practicing. Skills that we like to to do this at home, we always give the personal practice exercise of things that people can do at home. And I'm thinking things that we can do at home without actually having to get in the water. What do you have for that? Um Crossing water to me is very similar to the skill sets that sand. You could pretty well interchange the words water, sand. Uh, Traction is going to be different. We know that. Peg weighting is going to help us steer in there if the bike inadvertently seems to want to change direction all by itself. It seems like it has a brain and it wants to throw you off. Clutch control is exactly the same. So practicing sand or loose terrain is almost the same skill sets required as water crossings. Uh, Mud especially. There might not be puddles. It's just mud. That will help your skill sets in tackling water crossings because the problem, often the two go together. There's mud at the bottom because the soil's been all chewed up by other trail users and you can't see that. So we always tell people if there's ruts going in on one side, stands to reason there's ruts in the puddles that you can't see. 
So practicing slow speed control, being able to put the front tire where you want with peg steering and clutch control. We've talked about that on, I think, previous um, chats, Jim, Mm -hmm. that that's going to help you when you get into the water. So basic slow speed control practice on grass or gravel or sand is going to make you a better a better water crosser. Okay, right. And and how about walking your bike? Yeah, just same thing. You don't have to have a puddle to get comfortable walking it around. You really should do it on dry ground. Left side of the bike, covering the clutch, lean the bike up against your right. The bike's leaning left onto your right hip and short steps at a pace that you're comfortable with. And that's not jogging, that's the bikes in control. I always think of, you see the person walking their dog and the dog is straining, <laughs> the leash is very tight and the dog's walking the people, the dog's in control. Mm-hmm. You gotta tell your motorcycle, hey, I'm the boss of you, I'm in control and you're not in control unless you've got clutch. So by practicing walking it on flat ground, you, you're getting the, well, you're, you're balancing, you're learning to balance the bike, you're learning to work with the speed, and you're certainly learning to use your clutch in the way that you've described. Yes, exactly. And, and how about putting your foot down, practicing that motion of, of getting your foot down and, and dragging your leg up over the seat? Try it. You'll be most comfortable doing it with your left foot because most people... Um, will put their left foot down coming to a stop and they keep their right foot up on the brake. Uh, Safety instructors, riding instructors would motivate people to do that if they know what they're talking about. And so if you're the put both feet down type person, try just putting one and shift your weight way over to the side that you're going to put the foot down. So your butt's off the seat and that way you'll have more experience and balance when stopping. All right, shift your body over. You're not, yes, so, you're not exactly. so much balancing it that way. You're shifting your body over. And so and once you have that, of course, you want to practice both sides because you, you're yes. not always guaranteed you're going to get to the left side if you're, if you're in a, a creek and you, you end up sl- slipping one way and, and having to put your foot down. So the, the key is here is what you're describing is learning to get your foot all the way down, even if it's a long way, and still balance the bike and doing that by sliding off the bike and keeping your one leg sort of partway over. It almost looks like you're, you're sort of swinging your leg over to get on it. That's what you look like when you're standing there exactly. balancing it. Right. Yeah, it's kind of the, the end of that. And practice the side that you're least experienced on. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. You're going to need that. You need both. Yeah. Oh, all right. So um, is there anything else we missed? I think... The, we took a funny picture once on a GS challenge. We were, um, the week before the participants arrived, I took, because we knew there was going to be a lot of water. So I'll see if I can find the photograph, but I purposely laid my bike over, not in the water, but kind of the side of the puddle. And I have a face mask and snorkel on. So <laughs> I was going to suggest, you know, take a couple of deep breaths before you go into deep water. But (laughs) now it's, I think it's best to avoid it. You know, Mm -hmm. our bikes are too expensive. You want to continue the rest of the ride and make it to the hotel or campsite or home. Uh, Just charging in and lots of gas is a great way to crash and not make it home. 
I was thinking about that when you were talking earlier, when you said about, you know, if, if it's too bad, you know, you're better off to find a route. And I thought it's a lot nicer to ride even, you know, an hour out of your way rather than spend two hours or even that same hour or more in the Creek trying to get the bike out because it's, it's fallen over and hydraulic and it's just a whole different scenario. So the long ride around would seem easy in comparison to having that bike suck in water. True. And the thing, I don't want people listening to get such a horrible um, view of water crossings because they can be really rewarding to think, oh my God, the water was splashing, the rear was slipping, Mm -hmm. and I made it across. It's a real rush to be able to do it. But in practicing it, there are some, you know, environmental concerns. We should mention, Jim, if we're nice people. Um, I know puddles that weren't there the day before. Um, I go in really slowly and with a little bit of rev and the ripple the front tire makes will alert frogs that I don't know where they are when the forest is dry, but within a day, there'll be frogs in the puddles. So you don't want to kill them all by charging in. Just giving them a little blip and you'll see little feet, wave marks of the frogs going to the bank mm-hmm. away from where you're crossing. That's and, a, that's a really good point. And you also mentioned about when you're doing, if you have to empty your car out um, and you said, find something to soak it up and you don't want to do it in the river, no. certainly. And you don't want to do it right beside. I like that you always cover that, Clinton. That's good. Yeah. Um, I'm always cautious of, am I crossing it where everybody else has crossed like that? crossing the creek or river has been there forever but when we go in there and you purposely chew it up and chew up the bank that could affect fish spawning down river so we want to minimize the impact that our knobby tires make that could cause a real problem mm-hmm. the the other small issue is certain kinds of mud will attract you you're up out of the water, you're traveling along through long grass. The grasses and seeds that attract to the mud that stick to your bike, that falls off on a different forest system. You could help spread invasive species. So what we do is power wash our bikes or garden hose your bike afterwards, go to a car wash on the way home, and that's a benefit of a clean motorcycle going into a different part of the forest. Mm. Well, that was great fun, Clinton. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. That was a hoot. I want to get out in the water now, but sadly there's, it's too cold. It's just ice right now. I I agree, (laughs) but it's just ice. The the water crossing will be something completely different. And that's a a whole different topic, the ice crossing. Yes, definitely. (laughs) No, thank you. Thanks a lot, Clinton. Okay, Jim, all the best. Bye-bye now. that was Clinton Smout from Smart Adventures in Ontario, Canada. His website is smartadventures.ca. They've got a, a large motorcycle base at the Horseshoe Resort in Southern Ontario, Canada. We've got some photos illustrating some of what we spoke about today, as well as the link to Smart Adventures, all in the show notes, as usual, for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com.
Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for listening to the show and being a part of it. I hope you picked up a lot from Clinton today. There's always stuff to learn, and we have all of our rider skills in one spot. So if you go to our website, adventureriderradio.com, and, and you can look at the links there, you'll find that there's a link for rider skills. That'll take you through all the episodes. So you can just listen to one after the other if you want, or search for certain things that you're interested in, or maybe re-listen to something that you heard before for. And Adventure Rider Radio is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support. Drop our website, click on support, and there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. Anything uh, $10 or more gets you an Adventure Rider Radio sticker. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on Raw. And we would love it if you would consider being a patron supporter. And what that is, you can just give a small amount so that every month you, you contribute it. And just once a month, and we do four or five episodes every month, so um, it's just a, a small amount of money will help the show out. So anyway, we'd appreciate it if you do that. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much once again for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Ah!